I'm Emily Jashinsky. I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Rachel Bovard. I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, we have a great show today that is going to touch on, I think, a sample of fascinating topics. We're going to start with, of course, Spotify's Joe Rogan free speech problem. Rachel is going to kick us off with that. Um, We're going to then segue to myself, which is sort of a similar topic about liberalism's uh, deep and increasingly apparent unhappiness problem. Then Josh is going to talk to us about the outrage mob that came for Ilya Shapiro's job at Georgetown Law. And Ben is going to talk about the BLM, the the double standard uh, that the Justice Department has shown for Black Lives Matter and other groups. So with that, I will kick it over to you, Rachel. So I'm yeah, I'm going to talk about Joe Rogan and Spotify, which, you know, listeners are probably familiar with at this point because it has gotten so much attention for the fact that Joe Rogan is pretty much the most popular podcaster in America. I would say some of his episodes on Spotify get 11 million views, according to some estimates or 11 million listeners. Like it's, you know, he, he has the biggest, one of the biggest platforms in in America. And because he has used that platform to have discussions uh, with sort of unorthodox doctors about COVID again, not like randos from the internet, but actual medical professionals that are highly credentialed. Um, People have come after him to the extent that from the white house podium, Jen Psaki has pushed Spotify to, you know, crack down on, on Joe Rogan spreading misinformation. And you saw, you know, not only it was portrayed as a list of 270 medical professionals calling on Joe Rogan to like stop spreading misinformation. It later came out that half those people weren't actually medical professionals. Um, and then you've seen this backlash from other artists, you know, and podca- podcasters on Spotify yanking their music, famously Neil Young, uh, Joni Mitchell yanking their music over Joe Rogan, some other podcasters. Uh, I saw Mary Trump, I think, removed her podcast. I mean, to me, this is just Joe Rogan cleansing Spotify and making it even better. But, you know, uh, to each his own on this question. Uh, but the interesting thing about it to me is that, you know, Spotify hasn't caved, right? They haven't pushed Rogan to take those episodes off the air, but they have deleted. And this was prior to this incident, but they did delete, I think, about 42 of his episodes when he came to Spotify. And that was something Rogan agreed to. But they have now agreed to, you know, put um, warning labels on some of the podcasts that are deemed to be, quote, quote unquote, misinformation. And Rogan himself had a pretty thoughtful, I think, insane response in which he was like, look, you know, you can slap the label misinformation on what I do, but so much of what we talked about, um, you know, was false two years ago and is now proven true. You think about the COVID lab leak theory, you talk about cloth masks, all the things that, you know, previously were considered misinformation and are now considered actual fact. So there's a million ways to go with this story. And you've seen people talk about, you know, cancel culture and and is Rogan going to bend and all this stuff. But to me, the angle that I find really interesting is that this to me speaks broadly of the ideological capture of the very upper echelons of capitalism. And what I mean by this is that Rogan, you know, people have speculated, well, he could just leave Spotify and his, his user base would follow him. They would to an extent, but where would he go? Literally Apple won't host him. 
right? YouTube would kick him off instantly. Now Rogan could build his own, you know, Substack following and and do it that way, but that's a much sort of higher bar for a user base as broad as Rogan. So he would I think necessarily lose some fans and I think this just goes to show that the free market, as we've always understood it, was as a great equalizer, right? That you could just go other places and sort of have your you know, views heard. And if you were good enough and popular enough, the market would lift you up. That's happened to some extent with Rogan, but you hit an ideological ceiling where if you don't agree with what sort of the elite want you to agree with, whether you know it's the right thoughts or you're saying the right things or you're promoting the right message, you will be deplatformed and not just from you know, your, you know, one platform. We've seen this now multiple examples, um, not just with Rogan, but famously with Parler, who was not only kicked out of the main, you know, access to the mainstream market and their web server, but they lost their lawyers. You know, their email didn't want to work with them. We saw when Trump was deplatformed from Facebook, it wasn't just Facebook, his banks shut him off, his credit cards. So you're seeing this sort of ideological capture of capitalism at the highest level. And that to me really changes the way conservatives have to think about the market to some extent, if there's an ideological ceiling that exists in that way. So that's a little bit more of a controversial take one I haven't seen. And I wanted to throw out here for some discussion because it's a little bit different than the like cancel culture discussion that I think we're going to have in a little bit. So I'm actually really happy with where you took that segment, Rachel. I didn't necessarily expect that, but I think this actually is way more interesting. So I'm happy. I'm happy you did. So it reminded me actually. So I had a conversation. I, I was sitting next to you know all of us were at Net, were at NatCon Orlando, obviously, and I was sitting next to Sorbamari at that first night dinner when Josh Hawley spoke. I, I think Glenn Rowley spoke that night as well. I can't quite remember the speaker lineup, but anyway, I was chatting with Sorab a little bit there, and we kind of had an op- we made an observation that it seems like a lot of kind of the older generation of the speakers and pundits and commentators even at NatCon itself, tend to use over and over again, kind of the language and rhetoric of like decrying cultural Marxism. But for like a younger kind of subset, the key word seems to be not so much Marxism, but neoliberalism, actually, right? I mean, certainly like in my speech, probably in your speech, I don't quite remember, certainly in Sorab's speech and a lot of kind of the others, it was actually kind of opposing kind of fundamentalist, you know, free trade absolutism, free market absolutism, neoliberalism that I think was like most frequently in our crosshairs. And it makes me also think about, you know, Henry Olson of um, the Washington Post. He had a column after NatCon. He's always, I think, a pretty shrewd observer of all these sort of intellectual trends. And he kind of juxtaposed side by side Ted Cruz's speech in NatCon with Marco Rubio's speech in NatCon. Cruz delivered all of kind of like the red meat culture war invective that you could possibly, I think, want. But he kind of coupled it with you know, I mean, he he wouldn't call it like Wall Street Journal editorial board style economics, but it it kind of gave off that sense. Whereas Marco Rubio, of course, has you know famously embraced common good capitalism and American Compass and that and the whole kind of uh, realignment project in Toto. So it does kind of um, put a thing. Uh, I, the, the the Joe Rogan kerfuffle kind of in a vacuum might not necessarily have major trends for this broader kind of intellectual realignment centric debate. But in the context of what's actually happening out there in the real world, that does kind of shine an important spotlight on that, right? Because obviously kind of the, you know, the intellectual hegemony, the hegemony of obviously of, of wokeism is ubiquitous at all these various institutions here. This is what Michael Lynn calls the professional managerial class. They all subscribe to the same kind of uniparty elite mindset. And like the market, like when, when the possible entrance to a new market, even if kind of in classic antitrust theory, even, even if the barriers to entry are so low that new entrants can enter, 
what the hell is the point <laughs> if they're all going to subscribe to the same thing and do the same gatekeeping exercise? So I think you're exactly right to flag this as, as a very, va- very valid concern. The, the conversation, I really did not want to talk about this on Federalist Radio Hour this week because to me it was like it's the most predictable thing in the world. As Rachel brought up, when Rogan went to Spotify, he had to drop um, a number of episodes, like literally dozens of episodes, um, which always seemed like an interesting trade-off. But it was sort of very predictable that this would come to blows, that COVID would be one of the biggest things that uh, created conflict between him and Spotify. And there were so many people sort of acting like this was majorly surprising or some sort of watershed. And I just didn't want to talk about it because I was like, what are you t- like? Have you been paying attention? Of course. Like this was obviously going to happen. This is obviously what people at Spotify think about him. Joe Rogan is obviously like basically the new Walter Cronkite for a million different reasons um, that uh, all of us have talked about for a really, really long time. Uh, And so it's like all these Johnny come lately is as soon as Spotify has an issue with with Joe Rogan suddenly want to talk about the cultural import and influence of Joe Rogan. But uh, I kind of came around on that um, because I do think given Joe Rogan's extreme level of influence, um, this and the sort of religious fervor over vaccines and masking there's some there's something instructional here and the way we ended up and chris bedford and i ended up talking about this on federalist radio hour we didn't plan it it just sort of naturally went in this direction that it it, joe rogan is sort of the peak of classical liberalism in a sense right like here is this very secular um very sort of openly i don't know degenerate you know drinking and drugs um and all of that person and, I mean, I think he's a he's a wonderful family man now, uh, but still promotes drugs and drinks on his on a show and, and all that good stuff. But is intellectually so curious and has a, a very diverse slate of guests. Talks about this stuff like in the most scattershot way, where he just lets all of the ideas compete and duke it out. And so then the question is like, is it gets back to the race a race against the clock sort of dynamic. Um, can classical liberalism save classical liberalism before society collapses in on itself? So can the marketplace, can to what Rachel was talking about, can the, uh, can the corporate executives at Spotify, even if they are now leftist ideologues, cultural leftist ideologues, can they gravitate towards the cash um, involved in something like the Joe Rogan experience in a way that allows the Rogans and the Jordan Petersons and the Federalists of the world to sort of defeat this ideology in the marketplace of ideas before our society completely collapses. And maybe we'll look back in, in 20, 50, 100 years and say in 2022, the, si- the society had already collapsed and it, it couldn't be saved at this point. But um, I do also think there's, you know, if we can, if, if, the capitalists uh, in the United States can decide to capitalize on this and aren't completely captured, which the evidence is that they are pretty captured. But if they can, if Spotify can stand by Joe Rogan and other companies can stand by their people, um, maybe, maybe it's not too late. And with that, I'll toss to Ben. Yeah, I guess I'll give a half cheer to Spotify so far, because I think the disclaimer label, if we're going to put a disclaimer on Joe Rogan podcast, and I think every NIH FDA, CDC document, the New York Times, the Washington Post, MSNBC, CNN, et cetera, et cetera, should all have permanent disclaimer logos on every single piece of content they put out, period, full stop. Um, that said, they didn't pull them immediately. So again, I guess you can say like they're better uh, in the realm of coward and or ideologically captured ruling class forces in our society. 
Um, I also think it's just worth stepping back and thinking about this at a very high level, very basic level, actually, of this is a pot smoking, tequila swigging, former UFC commentating, Bernie Sanders supporting guy who's just having interesting conversations with people. And that is enough to draw the full force of ruling class powers against him simply because he has some guests on who dissent from their orthodoxy. I mean, that's remarkable. Again, I would say, does this reflect a really strong ruling class or a ruling class that is just clinging for dear life? I don't know. It, it could go either way. Um, so I'll, I'll reserve some of my other comments about this to the end. But I think those two points, it's a remarkable place to be in America when because he draws 11 million listeners, thus he has to be crushed by all the commanding heights of society. And speaking of uh, postmodern misery, um, I'll make this brief so that Ben can get some time back here. Um, my segment is about this Shadi Hamid article that uh, came out this week where he's really ruminating on something that Ross Douthat has been talking about for a long time, um, but in a really interesting way that sort of from the somebody who's outside of the conservative movement and outside the center right, somebody who's center left, thinking about the new right in, in this context. Um, and so Shadi was talking about how liberalism, as Douthat often says, has an unhappiness problem. Um, and that's his headline, but his first line of the piece is, the problem with liberalism is that it makes us happy while also making us unhappy. One reason for this is that liberalism isn't aligned with human nature. It's it's a really interesting observation and he he actually compares um he, he looks at bronze age pervert and he compares um what he sees on the new right to actually what he saw um uh, in anti-liberal muslim thinkers over the course of the last century and the the common thing the common thread in all of that is really interesting it is about in that second line how liberalism is not aligned with human nature and judeo-christian religions and um certain interpretations of uh muslim texts and and muslim faith actually is that you can sort of see at least that there are distinct sexes and there's an emphasis on family etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, and however I, we, we do not need to get into a debate about interpretations of islam um, but the the point stands that sort of traditionalist faith uh, cultures um, are not exactly liberalism. Uh, and so I'll, I'll just with that brief intro on a massive topic, throw this open to the group with the lens of Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson and all of these sort of secular thinkers who are now landing on more traditional themes um, and who are landing like they're almost universally opposed to trans ideology for children and, and all of these different things. So is there a tide turning? Will the unhappiness probably problem of liberalism um, that Shadi describes as making us happy while also making us unhappy. Um, is it imminent that there's a there's a, a serious backlash to liberalism um, here in the United States? I, I mean, I think we're already seeing it, aren't we? I mean, that was kind of to an extent that was kind of like Trump winning the 2016 Republican presidential primary, obviously, it was kind of like a a very grassroots kind of um, uh, backlash against what we might say was kind of an overly liberalized conservative movement status quo ante that existed for the decades prior to the 2016 election. Um, even on the left, obviously, I mean, like the left's own form of liberalism is seemingly like on, a, on an everyday basis is only further and further crowded out by their own variation of kind of illiberalism, post-liberalism, whatever you want to call it, which we, you know, we typically would call like wokeism or something like that. So 
it seems to me that no matter where you look, that kind of this notion of, you know, classical liberalism is kind of like John Stuart Mill, live and let live, like the quintessence of like all that we believe in is only further on the decline, right? I mean, and it, it's difficult to see how that reverses anytime soon. I'm not necessarily sure we want it to reverse actually, right? I mean, I think kind of, I think kind of like the, 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 the modus operandi of the national conservative movement obviously is trying to bring a greater sense of kind of meaning and substance and like the substantive good more generally back into our politics and kind of moving away from kind of the old school kind of right liberalism versus left liberalism kind of very narrowly gate gate kept um, confines of quote unquote polite discourse. So I'm not necessarily sure it's it's even a bad thing, obviously. Right. But um, yeah, look, I mean, look more fundamentally here, um, I, obviously, like liberalism, whether it's right leaning or left leaning variety is never going to be a panacea. I never. I, I'm not sure it was necessarily supposed to be a panacea. I've never like studied Locke quite that closely, to be honest with you, to see whether he actually thought that the second treatise was like a was like a guide to, to live your life in toto. I suspect that probably was not the case, to be honest with you. I think he was at least in his personal life was like a fairly religious Christian. But um, obviously, like there are things beyond kind of the notion notion of kind of, um, you know, individual autonomy, individual rights, natural rights, however you want to phrase it, that, that that are orders of magnitude more important to you. And that's, you know, it's kind of a small dose of what we're trying to bring every week on the show. Yeah, just to, to that point, it's also worth noting that all the founders, even the ones who are characterized today as being, you know, the agnostics or the more secular ones, to a man, uniformly endorsed uh, religious displays in the public square, uh, basically all major public events having a religious element to them because they understood it was a religious people and it was only a faithful people that could uphold the kind of free society and liberty and justice that they sought to craft. Um, and I think with liberalism, especially to the extent it bleeds into a materialist view, it's, it's just not fulfilling at the end of the day. I think for so many people, like, you know, you look at the polls and they show conservatives tend to be happier. Um, more religious people tend to be happier. Uh, conservatives are also better looking. It's just science. Um, what was worth noting, uh, but, but se setting that aside, um, there's a lack of fulfillment in a world where there isn't something higher. Uh, and we're not also grounded and humbled by something higher. Um, and, you know, there's, obviously the act of becoming a real person, like building a family and having those responsibilities and obligations changes who you are. Um, but also the, the morals, the values, the principles that you're raised in and that you adhere to form your character and who you are. And I think ultimately a liberalism that's completely devoid of something far deeper than, you know, free market capitalism or whatever other principles we want to talk about uh, is ultimately going to lead everyone to a place of unhappiness and replacing God with man ultimately leads to disaster and misery. I can't think of one happy society in the history of mankind that has succeeded over a long run, certainly that has supplanted God with man. And it's really taken us liberalism in its most extreme forms here has taken us to a place that is anti-human that totally rejects human nature. Actually, is actively trying to destroy human nature, you could argue, in some ways. And that leads, that ultimately leads to disaster and misery. It's, it's almost axiomatic that it would end up this way. Um, but hopefully there's a natural pendulum that swings in the course of human events, and uh, it does lead to some kind of awakening. And I say this as someone who's a relatively secular Jew, but who still understands the importance of these grounding principles. Well, I think that's... Ben's kind of hit on it in the sense that, you know, 
classical liberalism as an experiment, especially in a secular society, was could it actually tolerate a secular society in the sense that, you know, without the same shared sort of traditional value system, usually imposed by some religious belief, could you all live in harmony? I think that was sort of the basis of the liberal experiment. And we're really pushing it to its limit, you know, and and I think people forget, like, this is not a given. This is not something that's really been done, you know, anywhere else. You know, wars have been fought (laughs) for centuries over, you know, whose value system will prevail. And so I don't think that um, it's a guarantee, you know, that that liberalism, as it's been always classically understood, survives in America, maybe some relic of it. Right. But we're but we're seeing that now with the sort of clashing in ideologies when even things like the marketplace become captured. Right. The market is supposed to be kind of, you know, like the public square where there's just cacophony reigns. And that's the point. But we're, we're you know, we're now seeing sort of these little civil wars uh, between value systems pop up even there. So, you know, I saw a tweet earlier today that was like, you know, it only sometimes takes one generation to kill off a culture. And I was like, wow, that's a black pill. But, you know, like this is a fragile experiment. And I think, you know, we would do well to acknowledge that. Let me make one more point, actually, because Ben's comment about better looking people made me think of it. And we also mentioned Jordan Peterson. So I I, I, recorded on Thursday. I literally saw Jordan Peterson here in Miami speak um, three nights ago. Um, It's actually the second time in, in a week that I've seen him speak. I guess he's doing like a South Florida kind of tour of sorts. Um, you know, I went, went with some friends Our you know, our, our friend, Dave Riaboy was there, Dave Rubin, another friend kind of emceed the, the, the evening. And I, I have to say, uh, and Dave Riaboy, I know this on Twitter, but to Ben's point, um, it's, it's Miami, which is like a better looking city, I guess, in general, but like, it was like a shockingly like well-dressed, like well-coiffed, like just well put together crowd. And it kind of it makes sense, right? Because that, that is Jordan Peterson's whole shtick. Like his whole shtick, obviously, is like is like the rules, like make your bed, like have order and structure in your life there. And it was really interesting to kind of see that play out viscerally. I thought it was actually quite noticeable. But does anybody else want to kind of have final thoughts here before we transition? Nope. Go for it, okay. Josh. Tell us about uh, the plight of Ilya Shapiro. Okay, so I I have to say on a personal note, it, it is somewhat amusing to me to see Ilya Shapiro of all people become kind of like the ground zero of like a national kind of mini mini controversy. I consider Ilya a very close personal friend, despite whatever kind of substantive differences about politics or constitutional interpretation we may have. We've you know had any number of kind of nights on the town, same law school, all that stuff. So. It's just very funny to me that he is kind of having all these articles written about him. I, I think I heard he might be going on Joe Rogan's podcast soon. I, I, I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but like, I, I, I guess good for him if that's true, if it's really getting like 11 million downloads an episode. Um, OK, so let's cut to the chase here. So the so-called controversy is effectively as follows. So last month, he went public with the news that he was transitioning out of the Cato Institute, kind of like the nation's, you know, um, preeminent libertarian think tank, to the extent that's not an oxymoron, I guess, uh, where he's kind of been for, you know, 10 to 15 years now, heading up their constitutional law practice. And he's he was moving into a role as the executive director of Georgetown Law's Center for the Constitution, where he'll, you know, he'll work closely with Randy Barnett, who's been in Georgetown Law for decades. And Randy is probably one of the leading libertarian legal theorists in the country. So Ilya was certainly was very you know, excited to make this transition. I know um, he was very much looking forward to it. So what happened was on on January 26th um, in the aftermath of something that I think we talked touched on in our last episode, of course, which is President Biden's vile, I would say vile and 
evil vow to nominate a Supreme Court pick, cabining it to literally 2% of the national lawyer pool up front, that of course being strictly black females. So Ilya Shapiro said this, he, he tweeted, quote, objectively best pick for Biden is Sri Srinivasan, who is solid prog progressive and very smart, even has identity politics benefit of being first Asian Indian American but alas, doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy. So we'll get lesser black women. Thank heaven for small favors, question mark. So if you read that tweet, um, there was nothing particularly controversial about this tweet. Um, Sri Srinivasan, I can say as like a lawyer who tracks this stuff closely, Sri Srinivasan has been one of like the front runners for a Democrat Supreme Court seat for a very long time. Um, yeah, even like Amul the Park, probably kind of one of like the most uh, ballyhooed like kind of Republican nominated jurist on the Sixth Circuit, I think has spoken very highly of Sri Srinivasan. Like his intellect is probably is like really like not disputed here. So it, 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 on the substance, not controversial. Also like a recent Wall Street Journal poll if not mistaken, showed roughly three quarters of Americans oppose Biden's vow to strictly nominate a black woman to fill the Supreme Court seat. The faux outrage, the ginned up blue check outrage that the likes of you know Mark Joseph Stern and Ian Milheiser and other people um, who I have very not nice things to say about have like what they start up on Twitter and eventually within hours really kind of made it into Georgetown law student behind the faculty. They focused on the phrase, quote unquote, lesser black woman. And they literally took those three words in the tweet in isolation and made it sound like Ilya Shapiro was talking about how black women are necessarily inferior, racist, yada, yada, yada. We all know how this goes. So, you know, within hours, Dean Bill Trainer, who, you know, uh, is a man who seriously seems to be lacking in testicular fortitude, has an email kind of blasting out, like saying that, like, you know, these tweets are abhorrent, like they go against everything we stand for here. And for a few days there, like it was like an open question as to what exactly Georgetown would do before February 1, when Ilya was set to start. Long story short, they come up with some sort of kind of mealy mouth and kind of halfway measure where he's put on paid administrative leave with an investigation pending whether, you know, he violated Georgetown's policy against, you know, DEI or inclusion or whatever we're calling it these days. And uh, in that same email that Dean Trainer announced that result to the, the, the faculty and the student body, you know, he he's loading the deck. I mean, that's very same email. The rhetoric is, is condemnatory to saying that this is not what we stand for there. So, uh, and then, and then like a day or two after that, I think it was right. Bilsa, the black, black law students association calls like a meeting with Dean trainer. And like, he's apologizing over and over again and saying that this is racist and abhorrent there. And apparently the students, like some of them need like a place to cry, a safe space. I mean, look, anyone who's like familiar with the campus wars at this point knows what this looks like. Okay. I guess for me, it seems like somewhat of a watershed moment. Okay. And the reason it seems like a watershed moment is because this is Ilya Shapiro. Okay. Again, like I know this man, like he is a corny dad joke kind of guy. The guy, he literally wrote an amicus brief in the Obergefell Supreme Court case in 2015, advocating for the Supreme Court to say that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right. Okay, I have debated him for federal society events and written for him like considerably to his right. This is like not someone who is kind of like a fire breathing um, social conservative. He, he is a true kind of classical liberal kind of Cato libertarian. So if this guy is too much, if he is worth this ridiculous faux outrage, this fake controversy and the dean, of the law school is capitulating himself this much. 
I, I, I mean, I, I fail to see what what higher education, especially higher legal education, can, can possibly look like moving forward. Um, I, I mean, it's kind of like a black pill take, but I just literally don't know. But I'll just I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on, on, on that note. So I've been watching this whole episode unfold and, you know, a lot of the takes from the right, you know, justifiably have been kind of the one similar to the one you just gave Josh, which is like, this is completely outrageous. Like what are these kids going to, if they want to cry room because somebody hired a professor, they don't like, how are they going to face like a tough litigator? Right. Like, and I think someone else, I think it was Inez Stepman actually more broadly made the point that like, we've all laughed at this and be like, Oh, they'll be mugged by the real world. And she's like, no, these people are going to manage you in the real world. Like this is not something that can be scoffed at and just be like, Oh, I hope they grow up because no, they're going to grow up to like control the world. But more broadly, this might be my take on this, I think is, and I don't know that anyone shares this, but it's like, is it time for us to just stop as conservatives and the, and sort of the right more broadly, just stop interacting with these institutions Right. Like you can get into this idea of like, well, I'm not going to judge someone for making their living. And obviously this is like, a, you know, in terms of the legal world, I assume a very plumb position. Right. Of scholarship and, and renown, I guess. But at the same time, it's like if I were Ilya and I just went through all that and I'm, I'm watching the reporting that I think Nate Hogman at Natural Review did on this meeting with these students and watching the dean of the law school just debase himself in front of them, I would just quit. Like, you know, not that that's what he necessarily is going to do or should do, but like, that was my gut reaction. I was like, why am I bleeding for these people? Like, why am I bleeding for a job where they obviously like hate everything I stand for? And so I'm just wondering if we're at that point where we just like, don't even work with institutions of woke higher ed anymore, if we just write them off completely. Uh, I'm pretty much at that point. I remember actually um, when James Damore was fired from Google over a PowerPoint presentation that he like made on his own time and passed around um, on his own time about sex differences, biological sex differences. Um, and the, I wrote an, ex- an editorial for the Washington Examiner, the, the paper's editorial, say, making exactly the point that like for years people dismissed the campus craziness uh, segments on Fox and Friends and said, just wait till those people get into the real world. They're going to be you know mugged by reality. Well, no, they shaped the real world. And that's obviously the case. And so at this point, it's, you know, what is... And this is not passing judgment on Ilya at all, because it's a personal choice. He has a family um, and there are everyone's calculations go into this, you know, they're where he thinks he can have the most impact and uh, consequence um, as a as a classical liberal uh, constitutional scholar. So this is not judgment on, on Ilya in particular, but the whole dust up is a reminder to Rachel's point, like, what are we fighting for? Are we, are we fighting for the opportunity to be um, in front of a bunch of kids that have been conditioned to hate people who think in heterodox ways um i don't i don't know that that's particularly valuable uh, or if it's more valuable than building up other institutions than taking Ilya shapiro to another law school that will have him and that can attract the students who are able to be molded who are willing to be molded um and so i think that's an essential part of this this conversation at at this point because i mean it, Georgetown, I remember when I was in college, Georgetown had a meltdown over Christina Hoff Summers, who is a literal like Bernie aligned leftist. Um, She's kind of a classical liberal, too. But they had a safe space with like puppies and all that good stuff. It was 2015. Um, So I I feel like they've been doing this to actual liberals for a really long time. Um, People 
at this point, that's the essential question, um, is, is whether the effort that we are expending trying to improve corrupt and broken mainstream institutions would be better spent um, at trying to build up other institutions. And that's a really difficult question, but I think it's the right one. Just thinking aloud here, it's also just such a contrast. Uh, my alma mater uh, during my tenure there invited Mahmoud Ahmadinejad to come speak on campus. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad can get a hearing, but Ilya Shapiro can't get a hearing. That's where we are now in America. And I think, you know, to kind of continue a theme that we started with Joe Rogan and that I'll ultimately close with, this just shows you that what I would call the kind of neo-Maoist anti-cultural revolution that we started experiencing that accelerated really, it was already there, but accelerated from the summer of 2020 on, uh, will spare no one who dares dissent from whatever the orthodoxy is on a given day. And of course, it's a moving target. It's, it's always changing the bounds of acceptability here. Um, so I think uh, there is a tactical question of what do you do in a circumstance where all the institutions, all the powerful institutions hate your guts and want you dead? Do you try to infiltrate them? Do you try to use every tool of power to chop them down and try to create a playing field that you can compete with them? Do you just try to you know, build your own Georgetown? Uh, I don't I don't know exactly what the right tactical answer is, but the but the overarching point that has to be acknowledged first and foremost, as we always go back to is this is exactly what time it is. It's a time where one tweet where three words can be taken out of context can ruin a person's career potentially. And I'm not saying that's going to happen here. It also speaks to the fact that the other side, let's remember when they do encounter courage, they may hate your guts and they may smear and malign you forever, but you can weather a storm like this to the extent you fight. I mean, Clarence Thomas is a perfect example of this, obviously, um, to a lesser extent, probably Judge Kavanaugh as well. Uh, the, the fact that they still go after Clarence Thomas and his wife, full disclosure, a friend, like speaks to the fact that they will hate you forever and they'll malign you forever, but you can prevail against them. But to the extent they smell blood in the water, they will continue to pounce and pounce and pounce. So I think from a tactical perspective, it's also incumbent to never apologize and to stand your ground in the face of a tyrannical mob, period, full stop, because that's what we're facing, a tyrannical mob uh, of cry bullies that are adult children, essentially, and ought to be thought of as such. And let's not forget while we're having this conversation that one of the SUNY schools is currently standing by a professor who has this like very long history of defending sort of intellectually pedophilia. Um, so while the, the sort of parallel situation, um, the, the reverse, I should say the inverted situation that Ilya is dealing with at Georgetown is playing out, there's the SUNY professor who for years has been defending pedophilia, openly defending pedophilia. So with that, Ben, I'll, I'll toss it back to you. Yeah, and of course, like, Angela Davis and Bill Ayers and all the other 60s and 70s radicals, they're all, what are they doing? Of course, teaching at universities, indoctrinating young minds. Um, and speaking of that domestic terrorist theme, so there have been a couple of different revelations recently in terms of a contrast that I've actually helped lay out at Real Clear Investigations. We have this January 6 versus BLM riot versus 2017 inauguration riot database that puts side by side the size, scope, and nature of the acts that were committed during these various episodes, and then the comparative investigative and prosecutorial rigor efforts associated uh, with pursuing people in connection with the crimes 
committed in those acts. And recently there have been a couple revelations from the Justice Department that are interesting. The first being that according to an FBI official, there were around 250 people, just north of 250 people who were charged with federal offenses associated with the BLM riots. There are more than 700 people charged with federal offenses associated with uh, January 6th. Now, Christopher Wray was recently giving a, a lecture about China and after that, after that lecture was asked some questions about, you know, is there a double standard potentially in justice in between how federal authorities pursued BOM rioters versus J6? And Ray basically disputed that characterization. Uh, he said, you know, in both instances, we've opened hundreds of investigations, made hundreds of arrests, used nearly all of our federal field offices, including joint terrorism task forces, inve used investigative publicity, most wanted posters, et cetera. So we're aggressively pursuing both. Okay. But here's one contrast worth pointing out here. The BLM riots occurred over months in cities across the country with one federal courthouse alone pummeled almost daily for weeks on end. And you have 250 plus people charged there with federal offenses. In the case of January 6th, you had four to five hours on a single day with over 700 federal charges. Now, of course, yes, this was actually, of course, at the Capitol. Um, all of those other offenses were not necessarily on federal buildings, et cetera. But nevertheless, the, the contrast is staggering. And it gets even more staggering when you consider that those people charged with federal offenses were not consigned to a wing of a DC jail, were not held in pretrial detention for months on end with these morning raids of their houses, et cetera. And oh, by the way, all of one January 6th case thus far has been dismissed. There were dozens and dozens of dismissals of these other federal cases. And of course, leniency called for, particularly with respect to those Portland federal courthouse attackers. Uh, so worth noting all that. And then there's a micro example of how this is all played out. Recently, the feds argued for a sentence of 12 years when the federal guidelines were 20 years for a federal arson charges associated with an individual who burned down a pawn shop in Minneapolis, killing a man. Worth noting, federal authorities did not bring homicide charges, even though the coroner declared it a homicide. They only gave him an arson charge. And the feds argued for this 12 month sentence, basically half, maybe just over uh, the, the sentencing guidelines. Why did they call for this leniency? Well, this is a federal prosecutor. I'm going to quote directly here. He said, Mr. Lee, this individual credibly states he was in the streets to protest unlawful police violence against black men. And there's no basis to disbelieve this statement. He appropriately acknowledges he could have demonstrated in a different way, but that he was caught up in the fury of the mob after living as a black man, watching his peers suffer at the hands of the police. He goes on to say that others were similarly caught up in Minnesota and beyond. There appear also to have been many people who felt angry, frustrated and disenfranchised and who were attempting in many cases in an unacceptably reckless and dangerous manner to give voice to those feelings. Mr. Lee appears to be squarely in this latter category. And even the great American advocate for nonviolence and social justice, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. stated in an interview with CBS's Mike Wallace in 1966 that, quote, we've got to see that a riot is the language of the unheard. This federal prosecutor also said general deterrence appears to be of limited relevance, given the passions and historical forces at work in the crime. If you know anything about the January 6 cases that are being prosecuted, that exact standard is completely thrown out of the window when it comes to anyone associated with J6. In fact, there are people being held in pretrial detention because of their political views about the questions about the integrity of the 2020 election. So basically, our justice system has said 
that the narrative of police being systemically racist and murdering people indiscriminately in the, the streets, particularly, of course, unarmed black males, is a legitimate narrative and rioting and destroying cities is acceptable in that circumstance. On the other hand, going out and rioting in connection with the integrity of a 2020 election is wholly illegitimate. And we ought to go beyond sentencing guidelines and charge people with sedition and beyond. It's a remarkable contrast here. And this particular case of this Minneapolis offense, I think, is is particularly telling. Um, and I think it has it raises questions that go to both 2022 and 2024 Republicans. And I'll just briefly say two of them. One is what's Congress going to do about a law enforcement apparatus and a DOJ that it pursues this clear, self-evident double standard, uh, pursuing people based upon their political beliefs or not, as the case may be. And then to whoever the presidential nominee is, Republican in 2024, what are you going to do about a law enforcement, intelligence and national security apparatus that is wholly captured by people who think this way? How are you going to deal with both the personnel and the policy? I don't expect necessarily congressmen to run on this in 2022 because I think that they don't have the courage of their convictions, the knowledge or the belief that their constituents are as outraged as they should be about the fact that we have a justice system pursuing people on their politics. But I think these are real critical issues because those J6 people sitting in that D.C. jail wing are an example of what they would like to do ultimately with all wrong thinkers, I believe. So with that, I'll, I'll turn it over to the group. You can tell me if I'm uh, being hyperbolic here, if, if I'm seeing this correctly or you think it's not as big a deal as I think it is. So I think this is like you know, in, in the panoply of problems that we have to face, this is like a huge one, right? When you actually are taking the justice system in the United States and putting an ideological filter on how it works. I mean, you've been seeing this kind of creeping this way, you know, for the last like five or six years, I think it was most overt during the uh, IRS targeting scandal under Obama with Lois Lerner. But, you know, you can't walk back from this, even going back to our conversation about like, what does a classical liberal society look like? Well, it doesn't look like one in which the administration of justice is done based on sort of an ideological flex. Um, but, you know, just a, a small issue that just tells me the right is not prepared to deal with this is, you know, I've, I've met with a number of people working on criminal justice reform from the right. You know, and it's a cause that I'm, you know, I've been involved with. Right. I worked for a number of members on the Hill that were involved with it. I understand the issues. Lip. But I said, well, what are you doing for the January 6th? I know. What are you doing for the January 6th defendants? And it's like crickets. It's nothing. And I'm sorry, like, that's the biggest tell I can find. If you are working on criminal justice, you are not working on this gross travesty that is going on right in front of us, then your cause is losing a lot of credibility. And, and so, you know, I think. It's interesting. I was meeting with Julie Kelly earlier today um, and she's done a lot of work, you know, bringing these stories to light of how people are treated. And it really wasn't until D.C. started seeing their own uh, get dragged before Congress and being threatened with criminal referrals. And, she, you know, she's been trying to tell the stories of normal people who have had their lives ruined, even if it comes to nothing, even if they're charged with, you know, unlawful parading or whatever it is, the chart, you know, the, this throwaway charge, they've been sitting in jail. In many cases, even just the subpoena from January 6th committee has ruined their lives. They've ruined their reputations. They've lost their employment. She was telling me today about someone whose church won't, doesn't want them to attend anymore. That all of the, this, you cannot repair. And so I do think that, Ben, you're right to call this, you know, one of the biggest crises that we're facing, I think, you know, politically, but also kind of for the construction of society. And, and I'm not yet convinced the right has a good answer to it politically. So I'll be, I'll be super quick and I'll save kind of the second half of the same stream of thoughts for final thoughts. Um, so 
look, I, this whole notion, and I, I do not think to answer your question, Ben, that you're overreacting. This is shining a spotlight on how kind of, you know, the notion of blind justice is kind of like a, a an ideal that simply does not apply in America in the year 2022, probably has not applied, honestly, for at least probably five to 10 years or so. Um, I, I, I kind of remember during the 2016 campaign with all kind of the Comey Russia stuff, that, that was kind of the first time that I started to get like a little red pilled as to the notion that this, you know, this notion in law school of like a true kind of like colorblind, like blind justice institution just doesn't necessarily apply. But Definitely, um, you're not overstating the point here. So I, I was thinking about this just yesterday, actually. So Charlie Kirk was on um, War Room, and he was trending on Twitter for saying, "quote." Somebody he's talking here about. Um, putting Anthony Fauci in prison. He says, quote, the people need to rise up. We're going to create criminal referrals. Maybe he broke state-based laws. State AGs may be able to indict him. So I come toss this to like my like very based like right-wing lawyer group chat and was like, so what are our thoughts here? And the group was like pretty much in favor of it. And like the notion, the idea here is like, they're going after Trump for tax returns. Like the notion of like the time for the right to like lament, like politicized prosecutions, that ship has sailed. It is over. So we can either unilaterally disarm or fight fire with fire. I think it's basically that simple. No, I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, um, and I think it's when you have the ca- institutional capture that we've talked about throughout this entire episode, whether it's in media, um, whether it's in uh, tech, whether it's in any of the sort of C-suite classes uh, that we can talk about, um, the, the way to defeat it. And if that institutional capture is not uh, tethered to any shared values, then you're, you're in big trouble. Um, and you have to sort of figure out how to, how to do that within the, obviously the appropriate boundaries, but I think probably expanding what the right's vision of, or, or understanding of what those boundaries would be um, is, an, is an important part of that. So with that, I'll go around the room for final thoughts. Who wants to kick us off? I'll start just to put a capper on the, the last segment, which is to say, imagine how the left would respond if, BLM rioters were all sent to one wing of a DC jail and the people working in that jail were all um, yeah, hostile to them on a daily basis. And they were kept in pretrial detention for months and they were made to go before a judge to determine whether or not they'd be kept in pretrial detention and repent for their views about the systemic racism of cops and the fact that cops are murderers of, of innocents. Uh, it's obviously unimaginable, inconceivable. And you know that that would be the greatest cause celeb of every single cultural institution in the country, our entire political class. It would be a thermonuclear event if there were anything equivalent to this. And oh, by the way, also worth noting, since we're talking about BLM, BLM is now under investigation by two different states and has ceased fundraising. Um, so that, that grift worked out really well, but maybe it's ending now. Um, so I just want to put forth that hypothetical. And once again, this just shows like we're not even on the same playing field. We're not even in the same universe as where the other side would be. And I think it's probably in large part because conservatives who haven't really looked closely at this don't want to be associated with people who are being cast as insurrectionists and domestic terrorists. But the cause of justice and equal justice trumps whatever your uncomfortable views are about that. And obviously, from the start, we've all ad nauseum condemned the worst of the acts and said that they ought to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But it's got to be the same for everyone, regardless of their political views. And the DOJ basically has shown that they do not hold people to an equal standard explicitly based on their political views. Some views are held above the other. So I think it's just a remarkable, remarkably disastrous place to be. Um, And lastly, just to go back to the Rogan segment quickly, and and I'll probably tee this up for Josh. Isn't this a case where we can finally test? And I don't know what you need for standing in this case, 
but test the proposition that the feds, including White House administration officials, are violating the First Amendment by effectively saying with a wink and a nudge to social media companies and other media companies, hey, you know, there's some there's some ugly speech on there. You know, you might want to consider uh, silencing it sort of like the mob, you know, nice business. You got there. It'd be a shame if something bad happened to it. This seems like this could be the kind of test case for testing whether or not they're doing First Amendment abrogation by proxy. So why isn't that case being brought? I have no idea is the, is the short answer to your question. I mean, it does teed up very nicely. Um, I saw something on Twitter earlier today. It seemed like Robbie Soav was talking about it. Based on the fact that it's Robbie, I'm not sure if I agree with it, but I mean, I, I guess people are, are talking about it at least. But look, I mean, there was an op-ed from like over a year ago now. Time has really flown. Wow. That we've talked this we talked in the show about, about like many, many times. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy and Jed Rubenfeld wrote this piece for the Wall Street Journal called Save the Constitution from Big Tech. And they they cite some very interesting cases there, including a case called Norwood versus Harrison. The court has like repeatedly said over and over again that the government cannot effectively immunize private actors to do that which the government itself cannot constitutionally do. So if, if Jen Psaki is basically saying like Spotify, like you do X and Spotify is getting some sort of Section 230 or Section 230 analogous kind of legal immunity provision, then yeah, like that would seem like a black letter legal violation. But I want to very briefly um, touch on something else here. So uh, to go back to kind of the Ilya Georgetown thing, I think Rachel's black pill take is, is, is exactly right. Okay. I mean, like we have to start just, uh, or uh, not start, we have to have kind of the end goal of just disassociating from these institutions in general here. The problem that is an end. The problem is the means. We cannot simply just stop sending like our kids to these institutions for the very simple reason that the world as it currently exists, these still are kind of the credentializing kind of gatekeeping institutions that matter. So if you so if you unilaterally disarm in the current moment, you know, you're kind of effectively uh, to an extent, obviously, trying to like deprive your children of X, Y, Z opportunities. So it's a bit of a cast 22 and there's not like an obvious answer. But I was talking a little bit about this with um Another friend of the show, um, the very based Max Eden, we're, we're messaging about this a little bit this morning. And Max's kind of upshot um, is you have to just start kind of just attacking these institutions, like literally like degrading them. Um, and that might come across like it's like a little like harsh, depending on like how over the top you want to go. But we need to just stop praising them. I mean, we need to like stop praising like Dean Trainer for like not just firing Ilya Shapiro. We need to just, we just say like, you are a clown, you are a coward and a fool and respectable people should stop associating with it. I think like, like, like the power of condescension and invective, which the left loves to use against us, it's probably time to start playing tit for tat there a little bit, at least in situations like this. I think, I mean, I think that's right. And it kind of goes to this broader point that, you know, I, I was hinting at, I think in my Rogan segment, which is that, you know, if, we are going to survive in some form of sort of liberalism classically understood, like the rights approach to these things has to change. And I'm not just talking about sort of attitudinal posture, but, you know, the right politically is going to have to, I think in many ways, use policy to force a space in which they can exist because the experiment is not self-sustaining anymore. Everything that we've relied on as conservatives to meet out 
sort of the civil society, from the mediating institutions to sort of the free market itself, to the administration of justice has been in very serious ways captured by an ideology that has wants nothing to do with us. And it's no longer this like, well, if you don't want to associate with it, don't live and let live. No, they will come for you wherever you are. And we just keep seeing more and more examples of this. And so, you know, I don't wade into the like national divorce debate, <laughs> but it's almost like if you want to prevent that, then you actually be, have to begin to take affirmative steps to, again, you know, expand that Lockean notion of just being able to, you know, exist with one another. And I hate that saying that because it always reminds me of that, like stupid coexist bumper sticker. <laughs> That's like not really what I'm talking about, but it, but it kind of is to some extent, right? Because we can't even do that. So like more ag aggression here is needed from the right, because the old ways of doing things, even relying on the marketplace. And that's the point I was making with the Rogan episode, even the highest you know, echelons of capitalism have been captured. And for conservatives, there is an ideological ceiling there. The things we've always relied upon as an equalizer don't exist anymore. We have to change our approach. So what that is and what that looks like is, is, the, is the future of the conservative movement, I think, it, that for the next 10 years. And, and ideological um, monopolies that are sort of uh, parallel, running parallel to uh, actual like economic monopolies are extremely dangerous. And we've seen that. Um, and one thing I'll just close on is Ben mentioned the BLM example of how they're now being investigated. And that's uh, due in part to reporting by the Washington Examiner that uh, after months uh, suddenly showed up in New York Magazine um, and then exploded with more reports reporting from the examiner and elsewhere. Um, so that's a place where millions and millions and millions of dollars were funneled to um, over the course of a year from major corporations and also, of course, from small dollar, small dollar workers who thought that they were supporting a cause um, that they believed in and the cause of sort of racial justice and equality. And as much as we may dislike that um, and know sort of better than what BLM says, a lot of people did that. And there are a lot of decent people who want to fight racism. Um, and with some more transparency and more media curiosity, a lot of people may not have ever wasted their money or sent it to an organization that at every turn, to the extent that it was doing anything, um, was undermining the fabric of our society and our culture. But because you have the ideological capture of the media and the ideological monopolization of the media, you've got no transparency. And this is a great example of how, um, you know, beyond the conservative movement, beyond right of center people and, and movement conservatives and party faithful Republicans, um, everyday people are being like, really hurt by this and we could talk about race-based vaccine distribution or race-based like uh, covid treatment distribution we could talk about all of that um but the blm example is also a good one that this society is so sick um it is it is ailing and it's hurting people just across the board and so i think some of these examples of conservatives or like really high profile heterodox thinkers like joe rogan they jump out and they're obvious and they're representative of what's happening down the line but we should always keep in mind that that stuff is happening down the line that it, it is trickling down to to normal folks who are just trying to live their lives and raise their families um and not be sort of addicted to this this horrible technology um or be 
thrust out of their community for having a different point of view or whatever it is. Um, and the BLM one is a reminder that it, it's hitting regular people's pocketbooks um, and it's, it's hitting our culture, um, not just in the, the sort of elite corridors. So with that, uh, on that super happy note um, about the, the state of our culture, I will say on behalf of Ben, Rachel, Josh, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Emily Jashinsky, and we will see you at the next NatCon Squad.